0: for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, July 2nd, 2014. Yes, we will be doing our light episode today as we continue working our way through the series of lessons and teachings on the book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see what uh, God's Word says when we examine it and read it in context all right like i said we're going to be uh doing our light episode today uh today will be the next series of lectures the next lecture itself actually on the book of first corinthians uh, from pastor ron Hodel and faith at faith lutheran church in capistrano beach california why don't we just get right to it here is pastor ron Hodel.
1: all right we're in first corinthians chapter four let's we looked at verse one i'll just cover that briefly again but um uh, let me read uh uh, one through five, First Corinthians four one through five. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required that stewards of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby not acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, I do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We just very briefly, uh, uh, I covered uh, verse 1 just uh, briefly, the the picture of. uh, this is how one should regard us. Paul's talking about himself and the, the, his fellow apostles as servants of Christ right? um, and stewards of the mysteries of God. And I uh, just talked about this, uh, the mysteries of God are not just the sacraments, but all that would be involved in the proclamation of the law and the gospel, pr- delivering, delivering the good, so to speak, uh, sharing the gospel including long gospel with with, with uh, the people. And then Paul uh goes on and he says, um, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Stewards were left for long periods of time back then uh uh unsupervised. Um, of course they were they 'd risen to the position of steward, and that was a very uh, important position and What was most important about that position was that the steward would be uh, would be faithful um, doing what the one who is in authority over him gives him to do and so for Paul and the apostles, of course, the master is Christ and God, um, and of course, several of jesus' parables talk about the importance of faithfulness while the while the, uh, the master is away. We have the parable of the, of the ten talents and using the talents appropriately. Uh, from Mark chapter 13, it says, It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So it's important for the steward to be faithful, trustworthy steward. And of course, Jesus also tells parables about stewards who are terrible, dishonest, murderous, uh as well. Uh, The dishonest steward who who misuses his master's uh his master's possessions. We had a sermon on that a few weeks ago. Part of what Paul is telling the Corinthian congregation is this um, if I am accountable to God, then I'm not accountable to you. Um, And what he's going to be doing, he's going to be setting up a contrast between his attitude and where he's at and that of the Corinthian congregation. Now, they know what they like in a pastor. We've talked a little bit about that. They especially like the flamboyant characteristics of, of, uh, I I liken them to the John Stuarts and the the, uh, Stephen Colbert's of the day, Uh, just uh, people who have a lot of good humor, they're charismatic they're they've got spunk they've got pizzazz they're captivating preachers so, and so forth um but for paul uh their assessment of him or any of the other apostles for that matter their assessment means absolutely nothing to him um he he says it is of no account it is the least of things i couldn't care less he says it doesn't matter if i'm judged by you or by any human court he says Heck, I don't even judge myself. Well, that's where he goes with that. Um, now, just an aside. Um, if you're the Apostle Paul, you can get away with that. Um, I don't suggest that that's the way pastors can most effectively win their congregations over. But, but in the end, uh, it, it, it should be true for you. It should be true for our congregation. It must be true for me. Um, that God's assessment is the only assessment that we need to to worry about. Um, God's assessment is the only assessment that Paul is concerned with. Um, And he says, that assessment will be made for sure on the last day, if not before, by the Lord who will, verse 5, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. But before that day comes, the only concern of a steward is that he be faithful to his master. Now, of course, a congregation shouldn't be worried about that at all. Because the master's concern is for the congregation. He's called it his temple, his body. So, so the Lord is not going to work against the congregation when the master is being, or when the steward is being faithful to the master. Um, but if, on the other hand, um, I would say, Faith Lutheran, I'm not accountable to you. Um, you might think that I've got something up my sleeve. I might have something to hide. And so what Paul goes on to say is, I have, I have nothing on my conscience. Um, I am not aware of anything against myself, he says. Um, but then in verse 4 he says, Even for that reason... I am not vindicated. I'm not acquitted in all of this. Paul realizes that he does not have the final word. His conscience doesn't even have the final word. Only Christ has the final word. And so Paul's saying, even if I'm not aware of something, that doesn't mean I'm vindicated. It's the Lord who judges me. Uh, The one to please is the final judge. He says that again to the Thessalonians. He says, but but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Um, now, Paul is certainly um, convinced that he has been a faithful steward. He's preached the foolishness of the cross, but even though he's convinced of it himself, He's going to leave the final judgment to God. Um, and so based on this argument, he says, Consequently, um, let the Lord be the judge on the last day, you Corinthians as well. Don't be judging me before the time. It'll be tested at the right time. The Lord understands all of the hidden counsels of all of our hearts. I don't know if you remember when uh, when Samuel was told Saul is king. Saul is king. And Saul has... Um, Saul is turned from the Lord. And now Samuel is told to go and anoint David as king in a private ceremony, to anoint David as king. And, um, and, and you can kind of tell from the text that Samuel is kind of a bit confused by this. And God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks looks on the heart. And so the Lord, who is the one who knows the heart, um, will be the final judge. And the praise then will come to them from God. Okay? Then each one will receive his commendation from God, Paul says. Now think about how this might apply to, uh, the contemporary church. Um, what this passage says to ministers today is ministers are servants. They are stewards. They're not lords. They're not despots. They're not the hair pastor, my way or the highway kind of thing. Um, first and foremost, however, is ministers are stewards and they are accountable. They're accountable to God. Um now this doesn't mean that they're not accountable to their congregations. Um it's appropriate for the congregation to judge whether the minister is preaching the pure word of God. And that's why we here at Faith have taken such care and uh such effort to make it possible for us all to to study the word of God. Um we've built this this wonderful teaching room, Didache Hall. Uh, we really focus on taking the study of theology and, and the scriptures seriously here at Faith, um, with Faith Academy and a number of different opportunities that we have to, to study the scriptures. What we want for you is for you to be the Berean Christians. Um, if you remember from Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul and Silas, uh, they they uh, leave, they go to Berea And at Berea, of course, they go into the Jewish synagogue where they always go. And it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So it's, it's important for a congregation to know its theology, to know its scriptures, to test what the pastor says over against the scriptures. You know, I think it's very interesting how the liturgy is put together where, uh, if you will, um, we have, we, ha- we have a psalm. Okay? I think, I think this morning it went exactly this way. We have a psalm, the Word of God. And then we have the Old Testament, which is the Word of God. And then we have the Epistle, which is the Word of God. Then we have the Gospel, which is the Word of God. And then we have the testimony of the Church in the Apostles' Creed this morning, um, which is all founded solidly on the Word of God. And then the pastor gets to talk boy, he better line up, okay? If one of these things is different, it's going to be the pastor, so he's got to, got to make sure that he lines up with, with what the Scriptures say. Um, and so uh, that means that as a congregation, you need to know your Scriptures. Um, you need to know Christian dogmatics. You need to uh, be aware of our, our certainly our creeds and our, and our confessions. They're all very helpful in making sure that everything uh, lines up with Scripture. Because if you don't, the pastor can pull the wool over your eyes. I think Dr. Rosenblatt tells the story of congregations where uh, the theology changes. We believe that Jesus bodily rose from the tomb on Easter Sunday. Um, and the pastor comes in and, and preaches that Jesus rose in your hearts. You know, and he said, well, Pastor, doesn't that mean, I mean, didn't he bodily rise? He said, well, no, no, we don't exactly mean that. He rose in your heart. And that, we're just saying the same thing, just in a different way. Oh, okay. No, it's not okay. All right? Um, and so it's important for the congregation to know its theology. Um, on the other hand, the main thrust of this section here in Corinthians is that the congregation should not... Examined their ministers on the wrong grounds, uh, like Samuel was tempted to do. the The height of Paul's, uh, the height of Saul's stature and and uh, his impressiveness. He looked like a king. He smelled like a king. He well, he didn't act like a king, um, but. Uh, um, you know, to judge the pastor on his charismatic abilities and qualities, whether he's a good, I called him the second sophistic preacher, you know, those really captivating guys who, who are very good with rhetoric and can, can sway whole groups of people, that he's run successful building programs or increased the numbers or has a nice family. I do have a nice family. Um, uh, whose kids are all compliant. Uh, um, he's a good, you know, good reputation, has a good reputation in the community. Um, those are all the wrong reasons to evaluate a pastor. Or at least they're certainly way, way down on the, on the scale. Kind of reminded me of that email that went around. Um, uh, the perfect pastor, because you all want a perfect pastor. And it says, uh, that he preaches exactly 15 minutes, condemns sin, but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he's also the janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives about $50 a week to the poor. Um, He's 28 years old and he's been preaching for 30 years. Um, He's wonderfully gentle and handsome. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all his time with senior citizens. Um, uh, The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face. (laughs) (laughs) because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes 15 calls a day on church family shut-ins and hospitalized, spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched, and is always in his office. (laughs) If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this letter to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one year you will receive one thousand six hundred and forty-three pastors, and one of them should be should be perfect. Warning. Keep this letter going. One church broke the chain and got its old pastor back in less than three months. (laughs) Uh, Don't use human standards to uh evaluate godly things. It's God alone who judges, and the pastor is accountable to him and not to uh not to a, a court of human opinion. And the basis for the evaluation is faithfulness to the Master in what he has been given to do. Um, I just might add, our, our church body then has traditionally understood that instead of a pastor being like in a, in a position of an at-will employee where you can hire and fire at will, um, there are only certain grounds that, that need to be there for, for a pastor's dismissal. Um, basically, there's three of them. Um, manifest and unrepentant lifestyle. He's manifest in it and he's unrepentant when he's, not that he, you know, uh, he's caught and he repents, but, but he's manifest and he's unrepentant in terms of a lifestyle. Um, manifest an unrepentant teaching of false doctrine. Right? Um, manifest an unrepentant dereliction of duties. I think pastors probably all, we, we all get different, you know, you got a lot of balls and you're juggling all the balls and we're always dropping one or two of them and then you pick up this one and get that going and then another one fall. But it's not a manifest and unrepentant dereliction of duties. Um, it's very repentant. Um, God requires his servants and then we could add his congregations, his temple to be faithful. Um, he not successful um not charismatic not creative um so don't judge according to human opinion whether the church or the pastor has been successful that's the lord's call um now that doesn't mean that i'm saying that pastors shouldn't have good personalities and you know try to be creative and you know we're not against success or something like that um even the way the world looks at it but um, and it doesn't mean that sometimes there's not a good fit between a congregation and a pastor, Um or sometimes the pastor's job is done and God ha- has a need to move that pastor on. Um, but uh you've got to evaluate things in the right way. And we need to be faithful to what God has given us to do, pastors and congregations. Um, and so in verses 1 through 5, Paul has been discussing how the work of the servants of God is to be evaluated. And now he's going to turn, and he's going to talk to the congregation because he's setting up a a comparison between his attitude toward the work of the master and the congregation's attitude toward the work of the master. So let's take a look at 6 and 7. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefits, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Um, Paul says, it's for your sake that I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. Um, uh, But now I'm going to be talking to you guys. There are some lessons for you as a congregation to learn. Uh, And first he says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what stands written. Now, in the Greek, that's a very complicated sentence, and some commentators just kind of throw it out as unintelligible and omit it from their translations and say, there's nothing we can do with this. Um they say that the original is so corrupted we don't we don't even know what it says. Um others say it's some some kind of proverbial saying that was going around at the time. And others uh say that it refers to what Paul's already written, okay, uh, that they already have. Um uh, I think the simplest solution is to take it as a reference to the authority of scripture. Paul's already introduced re, uh parts of the Old Testament scriptures by saying it is written. And so that I think should give us a bit of a clue. Um and so in order to keep some in Corinth from getting too carried away with their enthusiasm toward these really fantastic second sophistic preachers, um Paul uh Paul reminds them that they need to be humbly submissive to the Scriptures, to the Old Testament Scriptures. Not to go beyond what's written there in the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, don't come up with what uh, one commentator called some second-stage gospel. You know, we've got the first-stage gospel, but there's something beyond this that we're going we're to share with you uh, um, that goes beyond what the Scriptures say. Uh no, no. Uh, kind of, uh, it's kind of, uh, Fli- uh, Philippians chapter 2 language. Uh, uh, don't think of yourself too highly. Uh, he says, do nothing, he says to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And they were thinking of themselves as more highly than they ought. Um, they were being self-congratulatory, um, they were—they had this triumphant attitude about themselves. We are the greatest of all of the churches. We are the greatest. Um, and so Paul asks some questions that, well, he's designed to deflate their pride and their arrogance. Um, he starts to get sarcastic. He says, for who sees anything different in you? I mean, who made you king? Um... They were acting as if they could do anything because, well, they've been emancipated by the Spirit, nobody else has been emancipated, but we have. Okay, Paul says, who made you king? Um, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything they had was pure gift from a purely giving God. And Paul's not just talking about the temporal things that they had. And they did have many blessings and temporal blessings. He's talking about they, they had received the cross that was founded on grace alone. They had received the Holy Spirit who is sheer gift to you, as opposed to you having to do something to discover him. Um, they had the gift of the ministry in their midst. They had, they had divine worship. You know, God coming and serving them in the, in the liturgy. Um, even the resurrection of the dead, uh, which is an event that no, uh, no dead person can contribute anything to other than their deadness. You know, um, even that, the resurrection relies solely on pure giftedness. So what do you have that you didn't receive? And then he says, and if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? If everything you have is a gift, then why do you compete with each other? Uh, why do you act as if you earned what was given you by gift? So the Corinthians are making a claim that doesn't correspond with reality. They're thinking that they are all that. That they are really cool stuff. When in fact they're not um, grace leads to a a, a gratitude toward God um, uh, you know kind of an earthly wisdom uh, the idea of being self sufficient kind of leads to boasting and judging um, Grace has a leveling effect among us we're all put on equal footing when it comes when it comes to god's grace uh Uh, the wrong kind of self-esteem or self-exalting puts people on on different footings. Grace means humility. It means meekness. Boasting kind of pompously brags about things. Um, And Paul is going to be challenging them on that. And he's going to increase his level of irony. So let's read on with uh, um, 8 through 13. Already... You have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Um, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Already you have become kings. Paul's being very sarcastic here. He's he's belittling their boasting. You already think you have all this stuff. And what he's going to be doing is he's going to be comparing what the Corinthians think about themselves with how things are for the apostles of God. And not only how things are for the apostles of God, but how things were for Jesus. And not just for Jesus and the apostles of God, um, and, and also for Paul, but also for the prophets who came before them. So he says, Already you have all you want. You've got it all. Just look at you, Corinthians. You are the you are the model of spiritual maturity. I can just tell by looking at you. Um we've got terrible struggles. We're beggars, we apostles. We we must have messed up um, because we haven't been blessed at all, like you guys. Yeah. Um you have all the glorious stuff, so you must be doing it right. Um and we apostles, all we've got are crosses, and so <laughs> obviously we must be doing everything completely wrong. You know, so maybe we should become like you. Um already you have become rich. Um and they were a wealthy congregation. Um and that probably reminded Paul um of the of the congregation in Laodicea that gets um uh placard, placarded in uh in the book of Revelation. Laodicea was a congregation that was rich, the scriptures tell us, rich Prosperous and needed nothing, all right, um, even though they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked all right that 's what they really were, but they thought because they had wealth, um, they were rich and prosperous and needed nothing, and so what was happening was the Corinthian congregation was seeing only the glory side of the Christian coin um. They were failing to see the other side of the coin, um, which usually comes first. Just like the cross comes first, and the resurrection comes after it. Um, the struggles and the challenges of life come first, and the the Corinthians were failing to see the the need for kind of a this patient endurance under suffering that it takes to enter the kingdom of, of God. They thought because they had everything going good for them they had really found God. That's what they thought. They would have completely agreed with Luther when Luther wrote his Heidelberg Disputation when he wrote these words. God, this is for us, this side of heaven. God is not to be found except in suffering and in the cross. That's where you're going to find the true love of God for you is in suffering and in the cross. But because they were rich, they were thinking they, and they didn't need to struggle um, as if struggling were a bad thing. So they, they thought they were better than the apostles. And also, just kind of jumping ahead, because they were rich, that enabled them to misuse the Lord's Supper. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 11.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so my email address is com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash PirateChristian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on the book of 1 Corinthians. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back.
1: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false
0: doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday?
2: Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth.
0: Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars?
2: You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures.
0: Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer?
2: Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7.
0: What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons?
2: Is this a joke?
0: No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons.
2: Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind.
0: Pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O'Air. Cheap O'Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, Write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor thinks that biblical exegesis is, you know, three or four out of context versus strip mine from God's Word for life transformation. Just a reminder... Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you to the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code Eight. 58- Two oh eight. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right. Here is the balance of today's light episode of Fighting for the Faith. Here again is uh, P- Pastor Ron Hodel as he works his way through the Book of First Corinthians.
1: Without us, you have become kings, Paul says. Now, becoming kings is the destiny of all of us as Christians. Um, Jesus is King of Kings. Lord of Lords, okay? Jesus is the King of us kings and queens. Um, and there will come a day, for us as Christians, when we will share in Christ's triumphant rule. Revelation chapter 3 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. There will come a time when us sons of Adam and daughters of Eve will be kings and queens. Um, but Paul's being a bit sarcastic here. He's saying to the Corinthians, I wish you were kings already. I wish your reign had already begun because if your reign had already begun, then that would mean the suffering and the hardship of life would be over and uh, our suffering would be over. And that would be good that you would be reigning because we'd be reigning with you. Um, but the last day isn't yet. Um, and so, while we are now already kings in a very real sense, it's also a not yet as well. And so we live in this now but not yet paradox. Uh, so Paul saying to them, you are already complete, you're full, you're wealthy, you live and reign as kings, you have the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues, you have you have great leaders, you're such a wonderful church. It's like the Messianic kingdom has come to Corinth and Jesus is reigning right among you. Everything is just perfect. And then he goes on and says, Why, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display um, at the end of the at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We become a theatricon, a a, a spectacle, a a theater to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. Um, So here were these self-sufficient Corinthians, these privileged people who felt that they lacked nothing, who sat on the top of their world, while the apostles, who were God's appointed spokesmen, and they were being treated by the world and by this Christian congregation, and even by God Himself, the apostles were being treated like, like they were the captives that, that, uh, followed in chains behind the victory par- parade of a Roman, uh, uh, general into the city, and they would be the ones that would end up being, uh, being put on display in the arena and slaughtered, uh, slaughtered, uh, for the enjoyment of the crowds. And while they're walking in, they're booed and they're jeered and they are insulted. And Paul says, you know what? Even the angels have to witness this sad display. So it's, in one sense, no wonder that to the Romans, Paul reminds uh, those who feel like, you know, you're in chains behind, it almost feels like you're in chains behind the victor who is Satan and all his legion, and you're being dragged in to be put on display and to be slaughtered, Paul has to remind us, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Um, Then the irony continues. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. Now remember, it's got to be the right kind of wisdom. Uh, Wisdom isn't necessarily a good thing in the book uh, in 1 Corinthians. Depends on whose wisdom it is. God's wisdom, good thing. Worldly wisdom, bad thing. And uh, he, he's, he's uh, kind of playing with that. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are glorified. You are honored. Um, we are dishonored. It's kind of what the Corinthians were thinking. In their opinion, they were the wise, strong, honored ones. Paul and his kind were the fools. Um, uh, The Corinthians saw saw themselves as superior to the apostles, superior to those who had been appointed as their pastors, um, superior to Paul and Apollos, the weak, dishonored ones. And uh, it's like the Corinthians were, were taking on the attitude of the world around them. I mean you guys are fools for submitting yourself to to obedience to a crucified messiah um it's foolish to be attached to this foolish message of the cross. Um, why would you ever want to be considered a fool on account of Christ? Who would allow that um, focus more on the victory and not on the not on the suffering um and so paul writes um I know how how you evaluate things by how well off you are. Um, And you evaluate our spirituality by how things are going for us. Um, And he says, to the present hour. In other words, this is is going on even now as Paul writes to them. At the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. So it doesn't look too glorious on our side. But then on the... But then, who does this sound like? It sounds like Jesus. And so, it's like Paul is asking the Corinthians, who looks more like Jesus? And what Jesus went through. Is it you guys? Or is it us apostles? Um, Like Jesus in the desert and on the cross? It's like Paul said, I... Hunger and thirst too, but not you. Um, I too suffered from nakedness, just like Jesus did on the cross, well, but not you. I was beaten like Jesus was before the cross, but not you. I'm constantly on the move, like Jesus who had no place to lay his head, but not you. Um, I have to work with my hands. That was something that the Greek uh, civilization despised, but not you. Jesus learned a trade from his stepfather Joseph. Uh, The apostles, many of the the apostles were fishermen. I'm a tent maker, Paul says. Um, But because I work with my hands for a living, you hold me in disrepute, even though I work with my hands for a living so that I can get to preach the gospel um, untethered. I pray and bless people who harm me. You think that? Stupid. Um, despite insults that I receive, persecution, slander, I pray for my my enemies. I'm patient with them. But not you. Um, and the way Paul writes, um, this isn't just, as I said, past stuff that he's gone through. He's going through it even right now. Um, I, it's been a long, long time. Um, <laughs> but uh, there used to be uh, maybe it's not even on anymore, there's this thing called Sesame Street. It was Channel 6, mm-hmm. all right? Um, it used to be a good thing. I don't know if it's on now, and I, I won't vouch for any of that. But there was a song uh, in it, and it said, one of these things is not like the other. You know, you have three circles and then a square or something like that, and the kid's are supposed to figure it out. I never got it, really. But, no, um, <laughs> um, but, but uh, you have... Paul and what he looks like and what he 's going through, you have the Corinthians and what they look like and what they 're going through. you have Jesus and what he looked like and what he and what he went through, and one of these things is not like the other in a bad way um, and then Paul adds yet another comparison he uh, The comparison is to ancient Jerusalem um, He says, up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Scum is that stuff that I find on coffee cups that get left, and then um, are wonderful people that come in on Monday morning who scour this place to make sure it looks just spotless for us the next Sunday. Um, sometimes uh, there are congregational members, none of you, of course. It's always it's somebody else, but I know it's nobody in here. And they hide a coffee cup that has creamer in it, you see. And then we find it on Sunday morning, and that there's the scum of the earth on the top of it. Um, that's what he's talking about. The scum on the, on the rim of that cup. Um, or the refuse are the scrapings that you find after you've walked your dog at the dog park on your shoe. You know what I'm talking about. Um, that's the way the, the people of Jerusalem were, were treated when the Babylonians were besieging their city. And so from Lamentations verse three, it says, you have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. By that, by by Paul saying we have become the scum of the earth and refuse of the world, Paul is bringing up what was going on in Jerusalem while it was suffering. Um, uh, uh, it, it's the way of of ancient Jerusalem under siege. It's the way of the prophets. Jeremiah wrote lamentations, and to the unbelieving worldly wise, the apostles were like a foul odor. Um, to be avoided. They were filth to be ashamed of. Um, and of course, that's in great uh, contrast to the Corinthians who saw themselves as filled, rich, ruling, wise, powerful, honored. They want no part of what the apostles stand for when it comes to, quote, suffering. Um, they would rather be treated and honored as somebodies rather than to be considered nobodies. So Paul's being very, very sarcastic here. Um, uh, Kind of a quick look at the Sermon on the Mount, right? It kind of gives you a a picture of what Paul's getting at. Hunger, thirst, naked, homeless, beaten, persecuted, responding, blessing by blessing, enduring, bearing up under it, encouraging. Uh, The parallel is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So, how's all that fit with us? Um, and you kind of start to think, okay, we have it pretty good. We have it pretty good in the United States right now. Um, yeah, we got our challenges, but we have it pretty good. Uh, we're not like the Christians in Syria, Christians in Afghanistan, the Christians in Iraq and Iran, the Christians in Saudi Arabia, the Christians in Egypt. Um, that's pretty tough. And you know you start to ask the question, would we be so forgiving of those who inflict brutal treatment on us uh, in the name of Jesus? Um, in the name of the world. I should say in the name of the world. But then sometimes the church inflicts brutal treatment on people when they act like Christ to the world too. Um, would all the shame that Paul and Apollos went through be something that that we would bear up under? Um, would we survive the ridicule of the world calling us fools for Christ? Um, would we survive the ridicule of the popular church calling us fools? Um, we sing that way. In a, in, in a mighty fortress, we sing that way. Take they our life, goods, fame, child, or wife. Though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. We sing it and hopefully we sing it into our hearts but you know you wrestle would, would I have what it takes if I lost everything for the sake of Christ I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that um I have and I I um and for me one of the one of the best pieces of counsel I ever got was out of uh Cory Ten Boom's story um she just making a long story short she'd seen uh someone uh, die, all right? was a little girl, and she saw someone die, and it really, really, really bothered her. And um, and it's uh, and uh, it reads, "I burst into tears when she she got to her dad. She realized, you know, her dad could die. Um, I burst into tears. I need you. I sobbed. I, you can't die. You can't, Corey. He began gently. When you and I go to Amsterdam. When do I give you your ticket? Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we are going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Sometimes you you wonder, will I bear up under this kind of thing if it comes? and we simply have to trust the Heavenly Father that He'll give us what we need at the proper time, which is what the Psalms say. Um, So may God um, preserve us from such terrible trials. Uh, May He strengthen those who are suffering for the name of Jesus today. And we remember them in our prayers, I think, more and more during the the intercessory prayers of, of, of the church, because these are our brothers and sisters who are suffering for Jesus. You know, um, And if it does come our way, that God would grant us strength, he'd grant us courage, he'd grant us faith all the time. Well, that brings us to the end of a little section here. So why don't I go ahead and open it up for any questions or comments.
3: Uh, Pastor, I, I do th- think there is one thing. Uh, this, is, this has been a very good passage for, for me to hear because, uh, you know, I have a tendency, I think we have a pretty good church. That's my opinion. Um, and I have a tendency to kind of want to trash other churches because, oh, well, they don't believe the gospel or whatever. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, it's a good point. I, 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 should probably be more like just grateful that we've got the gospel and pray that they, that, you know, other churches that aren't hearing the, you know, what I think is, is the gospel and the law given in its, in, you know, in it fully, I should just pray that they receive that.
1: Pray that we receive it, sure. And
3: and give up on the the whole thing of, of saying, oh well, you know, or whatever, right? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. just you know, right. just be thankful and forget about that trashing stuff,
1: right? It doesn't help to trash, I don't think. Yeah, um, and I, I
3: think I th- I'm as bad as as anybody on that. Yeah, so. it turns
1: it turns people off right away. Not only those who those who have not considered that they might be wrong, uh, when you trash them, the last thing they're going to do is consider that you have something to say, and they're going to feel trashed, just like you would feel trashed if somebody trashed you. Um, uh, uh, but the, it's, it's hardly a way to win people over in, in, a, in, a, in a good way. I don't think it's wrong to have a foil to, to test against, but I think um, that little journal called Good News... I think they do it best. They take the official doctrine. They don't name any specific places. Just the official doctrine. This is what it teaches. This is the official doctrine. This is what they teach. And this is how it compares to Lutheran theology. And this is, and then you see how Scripture lines up. And let's just let 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 Scripture speak for themselves. Um, I, I kind of a bit of a different way of looking at it, but um. I was always afraid to go out and and share my faith because I didn't know everything. I didn't have all the apologetic answers lined up and couldn't come up with everything just like this. And then I realized, um, that, uh, that, um, I was trying to be God's defense attorney. You know? And, um, God already has a defense attorney. Uh, it's called, He's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a very good defense attorney. He will do just fine without me. Just go out and bear witness. You know? Talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of the sins of the world for you too, you know, and let it go at that. But yeah.
2: The disciples asked Jesus, what should we do do with the people down the way that are uh, healing or casting out spirits? And he said, leave them alone.
1: Yeah. Just let let it be. Um, God takes care of it yeah um i i I think we have to be faithful to the scriptures be be um and let let the spirit do his work yeah yeah. Because whenever somebody trashes anything then it immediately turns the other side off. it makes those who are on the trashy side feel good about trashing, but um it doesn't win people over, yeah Okay, let's go on. We have a little bit of time. Let's, uh, let's continue on 14 through 21. We won't get to that whole thing, but we can, we can take a look at that um, here to the end of the, of the chapter. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. <laughs> right. No, he probably doesn't. But to admonish you as my beloved children. Um, I really don't think he does this to make them ashamed. Um, That's hardly the way to admonish, in a a, a good way, um, your beloved children. Um, uh, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved And faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in a spirit of gentleness. So really, in all of this, it's not Paul's goal to embarrass the Corinthians. He wasn't chastising them because he was on this big apostolic ego trip. Um, uh, Paul doesn't get any satisfaction uh, from saying what he had to say for the sake of the cross. I think what he's trying to do, he's trying to restore a good fatherly relationship with his children there in Corinth, to lead them to a more humble, repentant life. Um, He was seeking only their good, um, and he wants the congregation there in, in Corinth to flourish as children who are dearly loved. That's what he wants for them. So in calling the Corinthians, my beloved children, what he's saying there is he's saying that he has a special relationship with them. And that special relationship with them is this. He was and he is their spiritual father. He was the one who first brought the gospel to them. He was the one who came and stayed 18 months proclaiming Jesus to them. He really cares about them. It's not a power trip that Paul's on. Um, it's not the kind of, I'm your father, I know better kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, the smiling uh, man in the white coat saying, I'm here for your good. Um, as a father, Paul's intention is to be a responsible father. Um, he wants to admonish his children there in Corinth, and admonish means to correct them without provoking and embittering them. You provoke your children, you embitter them, good luck in doing any correcting. You know, there might be compliance as long as you've got the hammer, but they get out from underneath the hammer and all bets are off. You know. Um so he wants to he wants to correct them while not provoking them and embittering them. Paul's their father, he says, their spiritual father, and that would make Apollos and Peter um their guides, or the Greek word there is the the word tutors. Um Tutors were important in Roman society. They were important in a child's education, usually, of course, a boy's education. Make sure he goes to class. Make sure that he doesn't look at girls. Make sure that he does his homework. I guess, uh, you know, um, tutors come and go. Tutors come and go, but no one can replace a father. Um, now, the other place that Paul talks about tutors or guides is where he talks about the law is a tutor whose job it is to bring us to the point where we realize our need for a Savior and direct us to Christ. Um, that's the other big place where the word tutor is. The law is the tutor, the pedagogue, the guide. Um, so now when Paul calls Paul and Apollos, or calls Apollos and Peter tutors, he's not doing that to put them down. Um, I think he's simply distinguishing relationships um, in, in the congregation. Um, Paul's their spiritual father. Um, But he qualifies that, he says, in Christ Jesus. Um, And his point is that everything he's done that he's accomplished in Corinth, even his coming to them and sharing the gospel with them, is the result of the good news of what Christ has done for him. Um, And as Paul has been made in the image of Christ, and as Paul seeks to be Christ to his neighbor, now he tells the Corinthians, imitate me. That's a pretty bold statement. Imitate me. I don't think I'd want to do that to you. Um, I probably shouldn't be proud to say that. Um, But this is the typical way that rabbis would talk back in that day. I guess today the, 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 quip is, uh, to talk the talk and to walk the walk. That's kind of what, um, what the rabbis were, were saying back then. Um, that he would, that he lives out in action what he teaches. Um, but I think first and foremost, this isn't about morals and ethics and behavior. Um, although it does include that. I think first and foremost, it's about keeping first things first theologically that they should put into practice Paul's teaching, which certainly results in in conduct, and he's going to be talking about that in the next chapter, but especially to keep the emphasis on the right syllable theologically. Um, That's what he's talking about here. And he says, I send you, Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul's getting at, Teaching the faith. He's getting at catechesis here. That's um, my ways in Christ. Teaching the truth of the gospel in its fullest sense. The law and the gospel. It's it's the way of the cross, which he just talked about. Um, My ways would take them back to the pattern of life that he talked about when he talked about suffering. Um, And it's the way that Paul teaches in every church. Church. So what he's saying there is there's a consistency in his apostolic witness. You're going to find me teaching the same thing everywhere to every congregation. I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, you know, leaving certain things out because it's going to make a congregation angry or something like that. I'm. This is what I say to everybody. And of course, that becomes one of the ways that uh, uh, just kind of looking at the canon of Scripture. Um, uh, is you know L- L- First Corinthians? Do we find that book being used in every church? And the answer is yes. It's throughout the Mediterranean. It's been spread out all over. If you had First Hodel here at Faith Lutheran, and and Faith Lutheran is the only church that had the book of First Hodel, that could be an issue. Um, uh, let me just say it would be an issue. Uh, but but First Corinthians. Every church is using it; gives it more credibility. Um, there's going to be uh, opposition to this. Paul says to my way, and we'll get to the opposition next week. All right. The Lord be with you. Thank you.